Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, like this podcast, which we hope you subscribe to. We also have a website at leadingsaints.org with thousands of incredible articles all about leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. We host virtual summits, live events, and also have a weekly newsletter to keep you up to date on all things happening with Leading Saints. Visit leadingsaints.org for more information. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Frankum with Leading Saints, and today I'm sitting down through the powers of the internet with uh, through this Facebook Live with Keith Wanacott. Did I say your last name right? Keith? Yes, that's correct. Oh, nice, been practicing all day. <laughs> so, give us uh, some brief background, Keith. Uh, I'll, I'll do some rapid fire questions here. Uh, where, where do you live? I live in Maryland, just outside of Washington D.C. Great. And uh, what's your current calling? I am currently the stake young men's president and sit on the high council. Awesome. And you, uh, which we'll be uh, talking about today is you've recently been a bishop. How long ago yeah, were so you? Released? I was released uh, the month before COVID started. So it's an oh, wow. easy barometer for me to remember. It's just over a year ago. <laughs> nice. You snuck out before the, the craziness. Right? That's right. Nice. And what do you do for work? So I work for Pfizer. I work on gene therapies and specifically in regulatory affairs, which interact with FDA because I worked for FDA for 13 years. Nice. So you've been part of this, uh, this effort of getting society back on track, huh? Well, a little bit. <laughs> I don't work on the vaccine, but. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> all <right. laughs> but we all play our role. Related right? topics. Yes. <laughs> That's cool. Well, uh, we were introduced by a, a mutual friend, Adam, and uh, he suggested I reach out to you because uh, he served with you in various capacities during your time as bishop. And he most more specifically highlighted a time, I think it was a fifth Sunday lesson that you gave that really destigmatized having tough conversations, especially with youth and, and making the bishop's office more welcoming. I don't know how you would describe it, but maybe just launch into that, that story and, and tell us how this came to be. Yeah. So it started when my was about 13 or 14 years old and we were sitting down and having a conversation with him because of some things that we had found in the browser history in our home computer. And slowly, the story started to emerge that a problem had existed for a long time, and we didn't know about it. And after that, we implemented some safeguards and did some more careful monitoring. But the 
problem came back around and I have four boys. My youngest actually just left today, this morning, to fly to Mexico City. He finished oh, cool. his home MTC. But all four of my boys have, you know, have been touched in one way or another by by pornography. And and my experience as bishop was that it, th- that's not uncommon, right? That it's it's very common for for young men to to be exposed. And as a parent, I felt like I was really inadequately prepared to have those conversations when I first discovered it. And with time being bishop and having these conversations with my own children and then having conversations with other people's children, I just felt like I needed to do something to help parents to learn how to have these difficult conversations with their kids. Because I didn't feel prepared when I had the first conversation and it came a little too late. In fact, you know, my son had been yeah. exposed for years before we figured it out. And I didn't want parents to have that same regret and and turmoil of, you know, figuring they were a little too late and a little bit unprepared. And so I appreciate that emphasis, like helping, like not just figuring out how to do it as a bishop, but helping and empowering parents to have these difficult conversations. Because really, these conversations should happen long before any bishop's office conversation, right? Yeah. In fact, I was just looking today at the the church handbook and noticed that in 31.1.7.1, for anyone who cares, right, it says parents have the primary responsibility for teaching their children the gospel of Jesus Christ. They help their children grow spiritually and prepare to make and keep sacred covenants. Parents also counsel with their children regarding worthiness and help them repent and improve. Bishops and other church leaders support parents in these efforts. And that is the first section under guidelines for youth interviews, right? And so right up front in what are the guidelines for interviewing youth? Parents have primary responsibility. And it's an update to the handbook, which I think is very welcome and very aligned with the church's current emphasis on a home-centered, church-supported, well, a home-centered, church-supported gospel live teaching. Yeah. And I love that just because it really takes a lot of that burden off of the bishop because there, over time, there's sort of been that that mm-hmm. tradition of like, well, the bishop's office is where he discussed these things <laughs> or, you know, go see the bishop because obviously there's a problem here. But, you know, the bishop should be not the go to source for all of this, but a, a resource, especially for parents that uh, he can help maybe facilitate some of these conversations. Yeah. I mean, let's obviously be clear that the parents are not a substitute for the bishop in terms of being a judge in Israel. Right. But just because we need to utilize the keys of the bishop doesn't mean we can't discuss um, sensitive topics with our children and know and be aware of worthiness issues with our children. Yeah. So how did it, uh, where did you go from here as far as the, the narrative here that you're laying So out? around the same time, the church published the new interview questions for missionaries. It was sometime around 2017. And you may remember that the church updated the missionary questions and published them worldwide and said, look, here are the 
the new interview questions for any bishop that is going to be sending a missionary out to serve. And it also said that these interview questions were available to parents to counsel with their with their children. And then there was a section at the bottom of that letter that talked about how church leaders could utilize these new questions. And one of the ideas in that letter said that you could use a fifth Sunday discussion to introduce the questions and talk to parents about talk to parents and youth about how to prepare for a mission and and how to be worthy to serve a mission and so th- i think that sort of planted the seed for me that hey a fifth sunday discussion might be a really good place where we could talk about parent child interviews and worthiness and the opportunities that parents have to interview their children yeah and so this launched into uh Moving forward with the the fifth Sunday lesson then. Right. So we discussed it as a bishopric, as a ward council. And then the question was, how am I going to do it? Right. That was my next big question. And, you know, I like to do things in a way that help people to see a practical application that help them to understand that, oh, if I did it like that, I could do it like that. Right. It's like. Because when you think about it, how do I ask my kid, you know, have you been smoking pot or have you been, you know, looking at pornography or have you had sex with your girlfriend? Those kinds of questions are they're awkward. They're hard. And and so I wanted to do it in a way that would help parents kind of relate and see how you could do it. And I thought maybe the best way to do this is actually just to set up a role play and go through it. And I thought to myself, but who am I going to get to role play this? Right. (laughs) And and I thought and and, you know, the the most common issue is pornography. That was the most common issue worthiness issue I dealt with with the teenagers of all the issues that I dealt with. And so I said, you know, I'd like to do it on pornography because I think that would be the issue that would be the most helpful. And maybe I can get my son to do a role play with me. Let me give that a try. Ask him and see how he feels. And as you might suspect, he was a little bit nervous. He's like, you want me to get up there and act like I've been looking at pornography? And we discussed ways that we could do it so that it didn't expose him as a real situation. We made it clear that it was a role play. I think that his participation made made the role play effective because that's what we ended up doing. And it was just real, you know, and I think what parents really appreciated as they watched it was the realness of it. And, and so that's how it played out. Nice. So um, I like to get in the nitty gritty here as far as a lot of these things, because as, as leaders or other bishoprics, ward councils, try and do this. It's just interesting to hear the details. So you start the fifth Sunday lesson and do you give some type of introduction before you jump into the role play, I assume? Right. So just a little bit about, you know, I told a little bit, just like I said at the beginning of this uh, interview or this discussion that we're having that, hey, I had problems with my kids. I'm learning as a parent and and I interview a lot of your kids and your kids are good and they want to do what's right. But sometimes they need your help and they want to confess, but they're afraid. 
and they need you to ask the first, take the first step, ask them the questions. And when you do, it liberates them to be able to share. It liberates them to be able to take the first step towards repenting. And I, so that's how I introduced it to the parents. Nice. Nice. So I, I want to back up because you said something in your outline here, as far as this, a lot of adolescents th- think they, they are supposed to follow plan A, oh, yeah. but there's actually plan B and maybe break that down for us. So I heard this, um, as a story from, a, that a general authority told, and it really struck home with me. And I wish I could re- tell you the name of the general authority that I heard this from, but I can't remember. But, but he said that Teenagers often go through life thinking, I'm going to follow plan A, which is that I'm going to be worthy throughout my teenage years. I'm going to make it onto a mission. I'm going to come home from a mission and I'm going to get married in the temple and then I'm going to live happily ever after. And, you know, just in case I have a plan B and plan B is if I slip up and I sin or make them serious mistake. I'll repent and I'll try and get back on the path and I'll keep going. And then the general authority said this, there is no such thing as plan A. (laughs) And that just hit me. Of course, there's no such thing as plan A. That's, That's what being human is all about. It's about our heavenly father knowing that we would be imperfect and that we would sin and that we would need the power of the atonement, the power that is provided through the sacrifice of our savior, Jesus Christ, to be able to change, to repent, to cleanse ourselves and become better. And when I heard that, I just thought to myself, parents and teenagers need to understand this. Not only is it the only way, you know, the expect the expectation that everyone go through plan B, but it's okay. It's part of the plan. Yeah. And I, and I love that, that way of setting it up. Cause I think even as we teach youth or teach others, we sort of create that dichotomy of, of there's two plans. Like, well, of course you'll want to just do everything right and be good and follow the commandments. Like, of course, but if you do happen, I mean, on the rare occasion need that, you know, plan B don't worry. It's there for you. And that's why we love Jesus and all this, but, but yeah, of course, let's see if we can, how far we can do plan A and that, that dichotomy we unintentionally set up through these, you know, well-intentioned lessons and whatnot sometimes creates this like, Oh no, like I have to go to plan B. That was never intended when in reality, there's only a plan B, right? (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's awesome. Really cool. All right. So you're doing the fifth Sunday lesson and you do, then you sort of give an introduction. Yeah. And and then then you invite your son up or, and, and I invite my son up and I, and I also explained to everyone, you know, I think one of the hardest things and one of the mistakes that I made early on as a parent and as a Bishop is when somebody would come to me and say, you know, I have something to confess or if I found something on the computer or, you know, discovered something that my children were doing and, and confronted them with it, and we had that initial conversation, I would forget to, or I would uh, neglect to follow up and, hmm. and just see what's behind door one, right? What other doors are there? And, and so I invited, and I said, 
in this role play, I want you to observe, you know, a few things about how I interact with my son, um, how I show empathy to him, how I react when he surprises me with a zinger, you know, how do I follow up after the first sin is expressed or, or how do I, and how do I probe deeper? And then what do I say to him? Where do we go once we have out there that we have this sin that needs to be dealt with? And so that's how I set it up. And, and then we started the role play and the questions. I started with the questions and it started, you know, just simple. How are you doing? How are things going? But then, you know, I took a very real situation and I said, I asked you to come talk to me because when I was looking at the computer, I noticed something in the history that was really concerning to me. And I said, do you know what that is? Or do I need to be more specific? (laughs) And he said, "Uh, I think I know what that was, dad. And then, so we went from there and I started asking the questions and it started with how long has this been going on? You know, is this something that happened once or has it happened many times? come to find out it's been going on for a long time. Well, how often does it happen? Is this something that happens once a week or once a month or once a day? And then, you know, I asked, what are the things that you've been exposed to? Have you just been looking at images or is it videos? And is it videos of just a man and a woman? Or is it a man and a man or a woman and a woman? And because, you know, unfortunately, right, like I've discovered the hard way that it's not just what you expect. Right. Right. And so so I started there, you know, and then we just kept going and I just kept asking questions. And if you don't mind, I'll just run through some more of the the questions that I asked. Um, So so then I started with who else knows about this? Have any of your siblings been involved? Have they watched any of this or looked at any of this with you? Were any of your friends involved? Did you send any images to anybody? Did anyone send images to you that were inappropriate? And then we started down the second most common thing that happens, which is, was there masturbation involved? And when does that occur? And how frequently has that been happening? And is it always associated with pornography or is it sometime not associated with pornography? And then we'd, you know, follow up on, on that discussion. And, and then once we were uh, kind of sums up the questioning part yeah. of it, right? So um, yeah. just, but it was, it was enough to show parents that there's additional questions that can be asked and there's a lot more beneath the surface, uh, there's usually a lot more between beneath the surface than you initially expect. Yeah. And I think I really want to underscore that because there's this feel, I mean, there's so much shame involved in mm-hmm. that people are feeling as maybe they've looked at pornography, right. And maybe that's progressed additional things, even to maybe acting out with a boyfriend or girlfriend, right? Like, and that person walking in with, with to talk with their parent or to the bishop, 
like they're so buried in that shame and they don't know if they can trust that parent. You know, they don't know if they, if, what if I tell them all this stuff, then they get really mad and I get grounded. I never see the light of day again. Right. Like <laughs> there's all of these calculations happening. And so a lot of the time there's this concept called spotlighting where an individual will come in and maybe there has been, it's gone beyond pornography or, or, you know, acting out or whatever. And, and so, but they'll say, well, I'll just admit to seeing it once and then they're I'll see testing, how they're testing yeah. the waters, right? Exactly. They're seeing how you're going to react to say, are they going to love me and help me or are they right. going to judge me and punish me? I mean, yeah. let's be honest. That's what they're, right. they're looking. They're testing the waters to see how you're going to react. And then like the, and once they sort of get that signal of, well, wow, looks like he's handling it pretty well. Like he hasn't gotten mad or like hasn't threatened anything. And then with these probing <laughs> questions, it's like becomes like they become paralyzed with the ability. They can't, they can't even muster up the, the strength to like articulate the words of like, yes, I've also masturbated. And yes, this happens every day. And, you know, you know, there's all these things, right. And so asking these questions, you really are giving them an easy way to, engage in the conversation by saying, yes, that was part of it. Oh, I'm glad he said that. Cause I didn't want to say that. And yes, you know, all I have to do is nod my head or whatever. Like, yeah. and then, and then they begin to, as the more information comes out, they're met with more and more safety. And then it's just like, it just builds upon itself and it just can be a much positive, more positive experience that way with, yeah. with these probing questions. Absolutely. And, and right. The, the, um, obviously you're not going to get beneath the surface if if you lose it with the answer to the first question, right? right. You're you're setting yourself up, and and I think they they need to be reassured. And so one of the things that I would always do when interviewing is whenever somebody said something that was obviously the truth and obviously hard to admit, you know, always start with. Oh man, that must be hard to come clean and say that, but it must feel good to finally get that off your shoulders. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'm really grateful you did. We can start the process of of helping you, you know, get that burden off your shoulders now. And yeah. and you could just see, you know, the countenance change. It's kind of like I've been carrying this weight and now finally I can, I can let it come off. And I would recognize that for them, right? Like, how do you feel? Like, do you feel like this is weight lifted off of you? Because I feel like that's what I'm seeing. And I'm so thankful that you are willing to trust me enough to share that with me. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, I love that tip. And, and, and again, cause in these interactions, it's really not about the pornography or the behavior. Oh no, It's all about the shame, right. And, and figuring out how to get through the shame. And then we can worry about the behavior later. Or, I mean, then the behaviors gets a lot easier that way. Once you get through the shame, then you can actually see some progress. And, uh, another, um, like, I love these questions and even like the, every opportunity an individual can take to normalize or destigmatize the behavior in this makes it again, removes an extra layer of that shame. So saying like, I hear this a lot and 90% of the people who, who struggle with pornography struggle with masturbation as well. Like is, was that something that was going on? And then they think like, wait a minute, like 
I'm not the only one. And he's actually had this conversation a hundred other times. Like, yeah, yeah, that's me too. Like uh, that, you know, and again, you're working, working through the shame of it. You know, one of the things I used to always say, and, and I would say this joking and, and it's, and it's sad that I could, I would even think to joke about this, but <laughs> I did it. So forgive me. But I used to say there's two kinds of missionaries that go out on a mission. Those who have confessed to pornography and those who are lying because it is so ubiquitous, right? Yeah. That every young man that I dealt with had, had been exposed to it at some degree to some level or another. And, but yeah, like you said, it's not about the pornography. It's just yeah. not right. It's there's no such thing as plan A. And and when youth understand that it's OK to make mistakes and it's OK to call on the powers of the, the atonement. Wow. It's it's a it's a liberating thing in their lives. It's great for parents, too. You know, one of the things that we learned with as parents, you know, I think it was harder for my wife than it was for me. But when our son, when we found out that, wow, he's had this issue and it's been years it, she was crushed. She was like, I failed as a parent. Mm. And I'll say that I felt the same way, but not to the same degree that she did. I mean, like it was, it had a physical toll on her to the extent that she couldn't get out of bed for a day or two after, after that first discussion. But, you know, and with those feelings, obviously it becomes hard to, to be, a neutral, <laughs> a neutral presence when they start to share these things with you. But that's, that's important. And I think one of the other, we, we were talking about, you know, tips, you know, and tricks that I learned doing these interviews. One of the things that I used to always say is that as you think about yourself, I want you to remember how Satan sees you and how he wants you to see yourself. And as your heavenly father sees you. And as he wants you to see yourself, Satan wants you to see yourself as a failure. He wants you to see yourself as someone who has made a mistake and is an awful person. Your heavenly father sees you as the person that you can become. And you should see yourself as the person you can become. What you have done, where you're at, has not changed your potential. Potential is based on where you can get to. And no matter what you do, your potential, who you can become, does not change. And I just, you know, it was just, I often wanted to remind kids that you haven't ruined your potential by making this mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And I love going back to that, you know, plan A and plan B that the adversary wants you to think there there's only plan A and you ruined it all. And there's no way to get back. There wasn't, there's no plan B to begin with. Right. Yeah. So, all right. So let's go back. So you, you're in the fifth Sunday and you go through these questions, just sort of do a role play of this. So is there anything else to say in the context of the role play or, and then how did you transition out? Yeah. So, so you know, I, I think I, I can't remember exactly, but there was one more piece of the fifth Sunday lesson, which was how do you craft the plan to help? Hmm. You know, you've you've gone through this. You are now fully aware of the issue. How do you help? And And this could be it could be pornography. It could be anything else. Right. But but I think um, 
there, there needs to be a plan for working with it. And this is where parents really um, can lighten the load on bishops, right? Because parents are in the home. They're with the child every day. They know what the child is doing. They know the activities they're involved in. They can check in hourly if need be, right? And bishops just are not going to have the bandwidth to be able to do that. And so what is the plan, right? Is it, do you need to implement safeguards? Do you need to set an appointment with the bishop so that you can access those keys, right, for... um, as a judge in Israel, do you need to update your goals in terms of what are you trying to be working on? Do you need to restructure your schedule so that you take out uh, compromising situations, right? That you're not in front of the computer late at night, or you're not doing stuff in a locked bedroom or whatever it needs to be, right? And so making the plan, writing the plan down and posting or I think the important thing, posting is not always appropriate. It depends on, like, if it's a house full of siblings, then you're going to need to be careful. (laughs) But, But there needs to be, in my opinion, a written plan that's agreed between the parents and the child. And because you need what, what often becomes a point of contention is how do you help? Right. Because the child, especially when they're older teenagers, you need permission to help them. They don't want you to do, they don't want you to help in the way that you want to help. They Mm -hmm. want you to help in the way that they want to be helped. And and we have to be sensitive to that. Doesn't mean that we can't negotiate and find some middle ground, right? Because we need to make sure that change is is effective. And sometimes those plans change, right? It's, it's like, uh, I don't think your plan is effective enough, but we'll give it a try. And when it, you know, when I know, when it yeah. fails next week, which I know it will, <laughs> we'll, we'll update the plan and put some more of my suggestions into it. Right. Um, and I, I, but that, that brings us back to one more thing, which is in keeping with, there's no such thing as plan a, right. Parents think, Oh, we address this and it will never happen again. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's done and over with. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was that was uh, one of the big surprises for me is, you know, the kids would have this moment and they'd confess and they'd cry and they'd get it all off their shoulders <laughs> and then you'd find it on the computer again next week. Right. Or, or you'd they switched from you put the safeguards on the computer. So then you found it on the phone. Right. And, and it's yeah. like just because that you've been through it doesn't mean that you're done right and and for my experience was for some of these issues they're they're ongoing issues that you have to work with and and no matter how many parental controls and and how how much you you put safeguards in place uh the issue seems to resurface again and you as a parent need to have the same reaction the second and the third and the 20th time as you did the first time yeah, that's really, really helpful. And I love that concept of having a plan and, and the, that, because I think like a big mistake, I see this in my own parenting is that I sort of feel like I am entitled to their permission to parent them. Right. It's like, no, no, no. You were born into this house. Therefore I was endowed with permission to parent you. Right. And sure. You know, you got to create, make sure everybody's safe and all these things, but especially as they grow older, more mature, you, you really have to gain that permission 
to be their advocate, to be their helper, to, to help them through some of these difficult times or else they'll go, they'll give that permission elsewhere, even if you don't want them to. Right. And so really making it that this is a, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling you how this is going to go, but we're, we're partners here and I'm your support and we're going to figure this out. And wow, that sounds like an interesting idea. Why don't we try that? And then next week it's like, okay, you know, why don't, why do you think that didn't work? What could we adjust? Right. And suddenly they're, they're learning along the way and, and it's more of their plan. And so it's going to have a higher effect, uh, you know, over the long term. Maybe if you let me, I'll just share one side story. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite stories when we were newlyweds, my wife and I, we probably been married like two weeks, maybe three weeks. And we were in our very first state conference as newlyweds. And there was a Saturday evening session and the state president said, I want to have an open uh, question and answer session. Please ask me whatever questions you have. And one woman raised her hand and said, how do you get your teenage kids to come to family prayer? And he thought about it a second and he said, you know, I'm probably not a very good person to answer that question because my kids just don't know any different. That's all they've ever known their whole life. Maybe I'll have one of my counselors answer that question. And that statement struck me and my wife um, like a ton of bricks, right? We're like, oh, if we want to really help our kids, we need to teach them in an environment where they understand that in our home, this is how it will always be. And so it just, you just reminded me of that when you said we need their permission, right? Well, unless you've already set the standard, you know, before they right. were even born and, and you've like indoctrinated them from, from <laughs> childhood. I mean, but, but I think, I think it, it is important to recognize that, um, that we do need permission when it's their life and they've made choices and they need to repent. You know, they need to have an ownership stake in that. But when you're setting standards for your family, you know, yeah, yeah you can set the principles for your household yeah. and yeah, are the sure. practice, the practices, right? There's principles and then there's practices and every family is, you know, every set of parents can, can set the practices for their household. And the, the sooner you decide to establish the, the practices and, and, you know, and be consistent in the execution of those practices, the, the more solid ground you'll stand on as, as your children get older and, and grow up and, and start making their own choices. And so yeah. that was just a little aside. Cool. Yeah, I love that. And, and it, again, it, you know, the emphasis of routines and things, especially starting them young and, and getting them used to the, these, these routines and spiritual practices can, can go a long way and, and they can, in, in building that trust and having an effective home. So, all right. So, th so you sort of transitioned out of the interview and then you sort of focus on the, you know, how to, how to actually move forward with a plan that you can come back to and discuss anything else to, to say around that concept. I think the conclusion was just then to invite the parents to, to, you know, plan to, ha to have conversations with their children and, and make it an ongoing plan, right? Yeah. You can call it uh, parent interviews. You can call it whatever you want, but you should be checking in with your kids regularly. And I, I used to say, this is, I used to conclude almost every um, one of my fifth Sunday lessons with, with this statement, you know, which is people always ask me, um, how did it go? And, 
And my answer is always, we'll see. I don't know yet how people take the message and implement it in their lives. And I don't, no matter how good my lesson is, it's meaningless unless somebody feels the spirit and acts on it and implements change in their life because of the spiritual prompting that they felt that they acted on and implemented. And, and so, you know, that's, that was always my invitation at the end of, of a lesson is to say, I hope that you felt something and you, you have that Nephi moment where, you know, you see and hear what your father saw and heard, and then you have that desire to have your own experience. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, and so that sort of concluded the, uh, the fifth was, Sunday and mm-hmm. it was, uh, and that was it. And and honestly, you know, my my son and I both walked out of it. We're like breathing a sigh of relief because (laughs) it was awkward for me. It was awkward for him. I wasn't sure, you know, how well it would be received. It was actually very gratifying to hear, you know, almost three years later, Adam coming back and saying, Hey, you know, the, one of the most memorable fifth Sunday lessons I ever had was that time you and your son got up yeah. and gave that role play. And I thought, Oh, wow. That's Maybe cool. It wasn't so bad. Yeah. Of course he yeah. has a, he has boys too. So he can probably yeah. relate now that they're turning to <laughs> turning into teenagers. Sure. And I, I want to emphasize that principle of, you know, you could have put a, a stellar like slide deck together with all these bullet points of like, here's, here's five questions you can ask and here's some things to consider and not consider or whatever. And then wrap up the fifth Sunday would probably been pretty good, but there's something about the human psyche and seeing something modeled that it really like anchors in some of these principles deeper. So this, I mean, there could be a, n- a number of different fifth Sunday or teaching opportunities where you take an opportunity to actually model what's happening. Cause I would imagine if there were youth in the room, they would see that and like, Oh, so when I go see, you know, the Bishop, he's not going to yell and scream at me. Interesting. Okay. Well maybe <laughs> I might set that appointment up, right? Because they've seen it modeled. And then when they're there where it's so ner- nerve wracking, they're a little more comfortable because they're like, Oh, I've seen this before and I'm, I'm willing to step forward. So the, this, this uh, principle of modeling things or a role playing, concepts is really quite effective. Yeah. Obviously missionaries do it every day, every morning. Yeah. Right. And so there's got to be something to it and it worked well in that situation. And so, um, it was fun to do. Cool. Well, I've got a few questions here from the live audience on Facebook. Uh, Nathan says, how have you handled, and you've sort of touched on this, but maybe there's some deeper insight that'll come. How have you handled those who are working with uh, you are working with that have struggled with this topic for years and they are unable to make any kind of progress. They have righteous desires like receiving the Melchizedek priesthood, go to the temple or, or serve a mission, but they just can't seem to get things under control. Any thoughts, Keith? Yeah. So I have a couple of thoughts, right? First of all, use the resources that are available. There's an addiction recovery program that's available and if if you're an adult and you've been struggling with this for years and years, you know, I strongly recommend the addiction recovery program. There are additional resources on the web, on the church's website, and also uh, generically on the web. And I would say enlist the help of your your family, 
right? I, I think the the one thing that um, I tell people all the time is, uh, and I told my I would tell my kids, but I tell people when they came to me as a bishop, it's okay to slip, but it is not okay to hide it. Hmm. Because that's what Satan wants you to do. He wants to hide you to hide your mistake, to be ashamed because here we go again, right? Yeah. I made another mistake. So I'm going to, I'm so ashamed that I, I committed a sin again. The same thing. Here we go again. I, ca- I can't possibly, you know, confess again. And my, my comment was always, it's okay to be on the right path. It's not okay to hide it when you're not. You know, and so so that's um, a start, right? Um, I think one other thought is that you know I had a, every bishop has their own style, and and my feeling as the bishop was that sometimes what people need when they are struggling, or when they well maybe I should say this when they sometimes what people need when they have sinned is some kind of consequence that's negative, right? That says you made a mistake, you have a ne- there's a negative consequence that goes with that and and you're going to have to work through this negative consequence. Sometimes people who sin need to be uplifted and something uplifting will help them on the path to recovery faster than a negative consequence. And so sometimes I would tell people, don't take the sacrament. It's not appropriate. Sometimes I would tell people, I see how hard you're working. You need the power that comes through the the sacrament. You need the power that comes from going to the temple. You need to be in the temple. And I would tell them like, go to the temple. You need to be there. And so, um, you know, I, I think the fact that, um, you've made mistakes and you've slipped and you've worked, um, and you, but you've been working on it for a long time. That hasn't changed your potential, right? No matter how many times you fall off the horse, it doesn't change your potential. And, um, and just keep updating that plan keep going to the resources and keep working it because it's okay. Um, Paul had a thorn in his side for his entire life and who knows what that thorn was, right? And maybe this is your thorn and maybe the Lord's going to, it'll be a little time and maybe it'll be a long time. But it says in Ether 12 that, you know, he gives us weakness that we may become humble. And if we, what's our part? If we have faith in him, then what's his part? He will make weak things become strong. I think we get confused about the roles sometimes. We have to be humble and have faith. He makes the weakness become strong on his timetable. And if we remember that, um, that, that might help also. Yeah, really, really good, insightful perspective. And this can be really, I remember this as a bishop, just, man, the person just kept coming back. It's like, we talked about this. Like, we had the plan. We did, you know, we checked all the boxes. And what? why isn't this clicking, right? And it can be very discouraging. And after doing literally hundreds of interviews with different individuals around this topic, like, 
what I have found is that if that person, you know, you mentioned these great resources, they're out there. Yeah. Let's make sure we exhaust those resources and see if they help. But there gets to a point where it's like, wow, we've exhausted all these resources. Nothing's getting better. A lot of the time there's probably a deeper level of trauma, wound, a concern, um, that needs some deep work and evaluation from, uh, a therapist who's skilled at these things. So, um, professional help. It, exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and not just like, oh, I'll just send them to a, a therapist, call it good. Like these, like there are resources out there that can really address specific trauma. And a lot of times as I have interviewed different people, what they found is that like, oh, it's actually, I was, I was numbing out with the behavior. It wasn't necessarily about the behavior, but there was this deeper, uh, agitation inside of me that never got addressed. And I was just trying to bury it with the porn or with these negative behaviors. And once that gets addressed, then these behaviors begin to stabilize and, and go away. But, uh, but it can be very frustrating. So I would just say, if you, if you find that it's not improving, like search for a deeper resource, a, a more powerful resource is going to help them rather than just trying to, all right, well, maybe you should text me four times a day. Let's see if that were like, that's not, that's not the thing. I won't do it. Right. So yeah. Anyways, I mean, anything where, go ahead go ahead, Keith. I was just going to say our, the bishops are not professional psychologists, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and there's a lot of great help out there. So, well, Keith, I, this has been fantastic. Uh, really helpful. I just love hearing what the other guys doing, you know, especially with the fifth Sunday lesson and how they executed it and what about it. And obviously it was a success and people can, uh, can do their own thing and make their own tweaks and see how it goes. But uh, again, just really effective. So last question I have for you, Keith, is as you reflect on your time as a bishop or as a leader in the church, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think that um, as bishop in particular, I feel like I learned to be forgiving and tolerant of others' shortcomings because I felt like I was held up on a pedestal because I had a calling, but I knew that I was not perfect and that I was talking to people about repenting. And at the same time, I was going through the process every day, right? I was trying to be a better person, but I had made my fair share of mistakes. I was not a perfect teenager. I was not a perfect missionary. I was not a per, I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect father. And, um, and when people put you up on this pedestal, you, you just feel so exposed, right? As a fraud, you feel like a fraud. And, and I just, and I just thought it, it took me a while to, to be comfortable with the thought that despite my deficiencies, the Lord trusts me enough to hold this sacred calling. And when I'm released, somebody else is going to feel like a fraud. And I don't need to expose him as a fraud because the Lord trusts him enough. I don't need to find out what his weaknesses are. I don't need to complain about why the next bishop doesn't do things the way I did them when I was Bishop, right? I can be tolerant and loving and let people be themselves and do what they do because the Lord, it's the Lord's work and learning to, to be loving and tolerant of others, knowing that they were loving and tolerant of me, despite my imperfections was one of the biggest lessons that I learned.
And that concludes this How I Lead interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I would ask you, could you take a minute and drop this link in an email, on social media, in a text, wherever it makes the most sense, and share it with somebody who could relate to this experience. And this is how we develop as leaders, just hearing what the other guy's doing, trying some things out, testing, adjusting for your area. And uh, that's where great leadership's discovered, right? So we would love to have you uh, share this with uh, somebody in this calling or a related calling, and that would be great. And also, if you know somebody, uh, any type of leader, who would be a fantastic guest on the How I Lead segment, reach out to us. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. Maybe send this individual an email letting them know that you're going to be suggesting their name for this interview. We'll reach out to them and... Uh, see if we can line them up. So again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact, and there you can submit all the information and let us know. And maybe they will be on a future How I Lead segment on the Leading Saints podcast. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.